Welcome to the Fishbowl, the podcast where I record conversations about business, entrepreneurship, and other valuable topics. Welcome everyone to the show. This is Fishbowl episode 14. I'm here with Cameron Sorsa. Hi everybody. We're really excited to be here today. Today, it's pretty much going to be a hodgepodge of different thoughts from two millennial entrepreneurs. What topic should we start on first? Let's start with entrepreneurship as a major. The idea of studying entrepreneurship in a college setting. Let's start with your thoughts, Cameron. I think it's really interesting studying entrepreneurship, as Mark and I do at Grove City College. Mostly because with entrepreneurship, you're building up to... Having your own business, you know, working on your own projects that are ultimately going to make you money. But the idea of getting a degree doesn't really lead up to that. To work for somebody else, you're showing them that piece of paper. Certainly. And what year are you up to now in college? I am a sophomore. Awesome. So you've learned this in about what? You just finished your third semester at college, right? Yes. So in about three semesters, you've garnered these feelings. People always ask me, uh, also studying entrepreneurship at Grove City College as a junior, what do you learn in the entrepreneurship major? What would your response to that be? With the entrepreneurship major, it's a mix of business and marketing type classes, as well as more innovative type classes teaching to work in a group setting on projects. You said, mentioned group projects on that. Tell me about how that dynamic, um, I've experienced it obviously several times during my career as a student, but tell me about how that dynamic really plays into the major. So my freshman year, uh, during the second semester, I was part of a class called Lean Launchpad, and by far one of my most favorite classes at the college. What does Lean Launchpad do? So Lean Launchpad teaches the Lean Startup Method. So there's a book about that that you can look up if you look up the Lean Startup. But essentially, yeah, starting by a Steve business. Yeah, Case, right? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that's pretty much uh, just about how to go out, make a business as quick as you can, fail as quick as you can, or switch your idea around. These are called pivots. They're vital in the class and, and Lean Launchpad as a concept in, in, in total. But these pivots and these failures will help your business uh, go towards a model which will end up having a product market fit. That's one of the key concepts and really the end goal of this class. All right? Yes. And so in my case, I got to work on a project called Dance Tracks with a team. And it wasn't an idea that I actually came up with, but I definitely had a lot of fun being able to work on that project. We were actually the only team in the class that got to advance on to the Wolverine Venture Battle on campus. Uh, but throughout that class, we got to go through the different steps that happen whenever you're trying to validate an idea. Surely. Uh, sweet. Yeah, Lean Launchpad, definitely one of my favorite classes. I remember working on a concept called Innovation Works uh, with a team of four other entrepreneurship majors. And in essence, what it was, was children's books designed to teach children about entrepreneurship. That was really fun. Every week, you had the class about once a week for, what, two and a half hours? Yeah, it was a night class. 
Yeah, I think mine was like on a Wednesday night. And you would just do a uh, pitch. Uh, in essence, sir, each class had approximately, what, like eight to ten teams, would you say? Yeah, probably eight to ten teams. Uh, oftentimes, we would do that weekly pitch that for a lot of people really helped uh, them develop those pitching skills. Oh, yeah, that was one of the biggest things I got out of that class. Every single class, you had to give a pitch, which you prepared, uh, giving the class feedback about what you learned that past week. Definitely a class which uh, needed to have a lot of attention on it throughout the semester because of the intensity of the pitches. And since you're pitching with all your other classmates, you obviously want to have one of the better pitches or at least be perceived as one of the better pitches. Sure, Mark. I know Dorian Lee Launchpad, for some people, you know, it was more of a side class that they were doing and maybe they didn't get everything they wanted to out of the course. But I know in my case, I got a tremendous amount of value from the course because my team went full out uh, when it came to working on dance tracks. Uh, we would be putting in so many hours. At times, we were meeting four times a week, as well as working on things outside uh, of those meeting times to be able to actually get where we wanted to go. We actually competed in an outside off-campus competition, uh, the Big Idea competition at Allegheny College, where you also participated at Mark with yeah. Te Amo. <laughs> mm -hmm. For sure. Um, those two competitions we've mentioned throughout the pa past podcast, I think it's a really good thing to kind of... Uh, convert into talking about these pitch competitions as they're a major part of the entrepreneurship program. Uh, these pitches are really designed for us to compete not only against each other, but against other teams and sometimes even the nation. I know I love submitting, applying. Uh, the, the application process for uh, one of these um, competitions can sometimes be strenuous and really require a lot of thought. And when you're applying to, say, you know, anywhere from three to five to six to seven of them a semester, it becomes almost like uh, writing an individualized grant proposal to each <laughs> one is what I would compare it to. So because of that, I'm get, uh, me as an entrepreneurship major, I'm getting very accustomed to this long, strenuous, explainative process of answering people's questions in a very smart way, but writing those down. That's really good for grants in the future, uh, for press releases, uh, for donor proposals, investment proposals, etc. But nonetheless, back to the competitions, that's a huge asset to the to the whole major, I think. And you mentioned the Wolverine Venture Battle, uh, which is the big one that Grove City holds. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so with the Venture Battle, essentially it was a multi-phase type competition where they narrowed down the applicants. They ended up having eight teams, I believe, uh, present at the final competition where there was $20,000 on the table. They had uh, the judges who were acting as investors. And uh, so it's a great opportunity to make money to pursue your idea. But really with competitions, one of the uh, pitfalls of an entrepreneurship program or the way it's set now that I think is most definitely evident would be when people pursue an idea just for the competition. There's a lot of people that will work on a project for a class or work on a project for a competition, but at the end of the day, they're not actually willing to go the full distance and 
make an idea anything. They're just trying to get some prize money and then call it a day. That's a really good point. That's when the academic dynamic of Grove City, I think, comes into play the most. You're doing these for different classes or maybe a campus-wide competition, and you really are doing this as as with as much effort as you can um, in order to win this award, but you're doing it in a sort of academic fashion, which doesn't really work for entrepreneurship. Because with academics, they have a start, the beginning of the semester, the end uh, of the semester. And then what happens when summer break comes? Well, just like a regular well-off academic kid, so to speak, uh, you'll go ahead and you'll take an internship over summer. Uh, you'll move on with your life. You'll go to the next semester and start focusing on next semester in order to get good grades or maybe in order to win that on-campus competition. That dynamic I've seen has created uh, for some really short-term business thinking as well as uh, some businesses which never really pan out, which had some potential during the semester. Uh, what, what would you say about that matter? Yeah, I would definitely agree, Mark. I know in the case of our project, Dance Tracks, that I was working on, it had a lot of potential of where it could go. It would definitely be a great challenge for us to actually accomplish with that idea, especially being that all of the members of my team were all freshmen, which was just an incredible opportunity to be competing at the venture battle. Including yourself, at right? At that level. Yes, myself as well. And uh, our idea sort of simmered throughout the summer and it didn't really go anywhere it's been put on the back burner and we're pursuing different things uh, some team members are focusing on academics and really we're all just trying to find where we fit I know in my case personally I'm working on my own venture that is something that I've started outside of my classes I've definitely loved working on it outside of the classes for the very reason we've mentioned that it doesn't end at the end of a semester. And also, you're not being paired with team members that have the exact same skills as you. So all the members of the Dance Tracks team, we were all entrepreneurship majors. And so we didn't have anybody with computer science background that could do any development, nobody with sales backgrounds or design. And I think that that is one of those areas that in a startup, if you don't have those essential skills, you can run into some issues. What sort of issues, Cameron? So one of our issues was with actually proving the concept. With dance tracks, it was something that would definitely require a lot of development to actually have a working product. But all we could do was really show them our vision best we could using mock-ups and a audio example. What sort of problems did you see with your peers as well? So problems that I saw with my peers, a lot of people uh, that were in the class uh, besides my team looked at it as just a project. And uh, because of that, they were really just doing it for the grade. When you do it for the grade, it's not going to be as effective. It's not going to be something that they're actually caring about, that they're truly passionate about pursuing. And when that happens... You're not really working on a business venture. You're just working on a school project. I see. What were some of your other ideas that you've had studying entrepreneurship? Walking in uh, to college, initially I thought you know coming up with ideas would be difficult. And uh, the past few months, I've started to realize that 
I have plenty of ideas, and a number of them are worth pursuing. And the question is, what do you pursue? That's a really good point. Since we're both really out in the business world, not only um, you know on our own sort of business ventures, but also we're going to networking events, we're doing as many things as we can outside of the classroom as possible, it's way easier to see whenever there is a problem you can fix. When you're actually out in the business world and experiencing it, there are problems everywhere you look, which individuals who really are you know sheltered in the college type spot, they might see problems for college students. That's why so many college students that study entrepreneurship are solving problems for their college students. Their target markets are always millennials. Their, tar- their target markets are always college students. H- haven't you seen the same thing in the past? Absolutely, Mark. And uh, one of the greatest values that I've been able to reap the benefits of was networking. It is networking. I only started networking uh, last semester, and uh, it has been incredibly valuable. It is, isn't it? And you know, since we're out in the business world networking, we're solving business to business problems. Individuals who sometimes think of a product and they're like, well, we can sell this business to business. It's way better to just go ahead and see the problem firsthand in businesses, then solve them. You already have a consumer when you're doing that. But when you're simply uh, standing in a classroom or in your dorm or in the library trying to ideate something in order uh, to fulfill a project, you know, in your own little bubble of the world uh, there at college, or you're trying to do it to fulfill an application to get onto the next round of some sort of academic entrepreneurial competition, it's not the same as actually getting out there and selling it and marketing it and actually getting your consumer to engage with a product all the way from awareness to purchasing. Actually going out there and doing the work is what's going to matter. It's been said time and time again, you know, you have people graduating from college that, you know, have been studying sales or business. They get hired by a company and they have no sales skills. They can't make a sales call. My my greatest mentor just told me not too long ago, he's like, I hired an MBA from CMU. And the first thing I told him was to go make a sales call. And he didn't know how to even make a sales call. That's just... If that doesn't show the system and how it's not parallel with what the actual job demands are in the world anymore, then I don't know what else shows it better. That's right, Mark. Actually, just the other day, I went to an event at Innovation Works. They had a little morning uh, speaker come in, and whenever I was in the pre-networking session... I was talking with a gentleman that I had met a couple months prior, but he was telling me how he's actually used me as an example to multiple students. He works with CMU students. He's used myself as an example of, you know, a student actually going out there and networking and getting out into the world. So many CMU students, they're just not showing up. They have free transportation to go somewhere. They'll bus them to places like Startup Weekend. Right. But All over very Pittsburgh. Few events, uh, very few entrepreneurs are actually going out to right. these events. Same with the University of Pittsburgh, University of Duquesne, Point Park, uh, Chatham. They all have bus passes. Yeah. But us Grove City students, we actually go an hour and a half south in someone's car. We go to these networking events, then we come up an hour and a half. But these people, they have this whole network of resources, this whole city to build from. 
and we rarely see any any city college aged individuals at our networking events. And I mean, with the free transportation that they can obtain and just the easiness to go out to an event any night they want to, as well as having the accommodations to already be in the city, for Grove City students at the Startup Weekend this year, there were 60 attendants at Startup Weekend and 30 of them were Grove City students. There was probably under 10 students from CMU, Pitt, or any of those other colleges in the area, but somehow us Grove City students were able to figure out our accommodations and get into the city to come to this event. Exactly, and that's actually why two teams from Grove City won Pittsburgh Startup Weekend this year. That's right. Two really good ideas. First place was a company, a startup company, concept called cuts coach which is essentially tinder for getting the perfect haircut for yourself you get to choose in between different variants of hair so the way i think about it is it's an app that's engaging and interactive which allows you to pick your perfect hairstyle from a large database of different images of haircuts kind of like how those old haircuts picture catalogs that were in the hairdresser used to be yeah, and then it gives the tools to the barbers and the stylists to actually perform those cuts and you know deliver that final product to consumers, as well as helping consumers know how to keep that hair flourishing and you know keep that style with a variety of products. Exactly. I like one of the parts of their business model is that you can even buy the recommended products. Say you need pomade for your hair, I can buy that through the e-commerce setting on the on the app as well and i just think there's a lot of implementations for actually the whole hair industry which has been the same for thousands of years just someone else cutting your hair i think there's a lot of implications for innovation in that sector uh especially uh since people really want their hair looking nice often more often than it takes uh say your once a month haircut as well as they really want that to be quick more convenient instead of having to drive somewhere and wait there until you can get a haircut and then explain to a person about the hair i think there's a lot more innovation to be done in the haircutting industry in the way of robots actually cutting our hairs what do you say about that Although robots will be cutting hair someday, it's definitely going to take a little bit for the consumer to go ahead and adopt uh, that new way. Right. So I think Who hairstylists knows? will be having a job for the foreseeable future. It's not going to be the first thing to go. It won't be the last thing to go, but it won't be the first. What do you think will be the first thing to go, Cam? Just out of curiosity, I was wondering if you had anything on your mind there. Well, we already know taxi cab drivers are basically out of work. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Right. Recently, I heard a quote is that the internet is killing every job. They just killed taxi drivers first. (laughs) Uh, I hear that next up, they're going to aim for bigger jobs that involve anything that really individuals have to be trained in sight with. So, for example, my father, being a pathologist, for example, that is the individual who uses his eyes to look at different cells, see what sort of activity is happening in the cell, and diagnosing it with uh, whatever ailment uh, they have so that the rest of the other doctors, the supply chain of doctors, so to speak, can then service them appropriately. Someone once told me that the pathology realm is going to be going out because individuals will be developing apps and visual software to be able to detect what cells these are extremely accurately so that my dad might be actually one of the last pathologists. Uh, What sort of other fields have you been uh, hearing this about as well? 
the medical fields definitely have some things to be worrying about. I know with pharmacy, it's one of those areas that people have thought, oh, this is a steady, uh, reliable source of income, something for me to study. But the reality is very few pharmacists are really going to be needed in the near future uh, as more and more uh, robots take their place, as well as just giving roles to people that don't even have the degree, right. giving more and more work to them. That'll be interesting to see. Kind of pulling back the curtain of time a little bit and looking into the future, these companies, for example, in the pharmacy industry, that control the pharmacy distribution. So you have your Walgreens, your Rite Aids, uh, those are the CVS. Those are the three biggest ones. Can you think of any others? Uh, yeah, those are some of the biggest ones. They're going to have to be making the decisions whether to hire pharmacists or to just go ahead and go on with robots. That'll pose somewhat of an ethical dilemma. And I think whenever we're getting into the more automation, the digitization, the technology advancements of our time, which are going to be happening in the near future, uh, there's going to be some big decisions for these brands to make around their policies about whether they should hire humans or just go with the automation. It'll be an interesting time for sure. Uh, have you ever thought about that? I have, Mark. And really, the Walgreens and Rite Aids of the world, really they're going to become obsolete here at some point. You know, in the next 10 years, it's going to be uh, very common for you to receive anything you want in an hour. It'll just be how life is. You may think that's only in New York City. In 10 years' time, they'll figure out a way for you to get what you want in an hour. And along with that, you know, we're going to start drifting towards, you know, your medications, prescriptions. They'll just be fulfilled online, and they'll be sent to you. It's already being done, and uh, it's only going to become more and more widely used as time goes on. Really good point. It's like, say, Amazon just acquired Whole Foods, and now we're seeing individuals switching or going to switch very soon to online groceries, which are literally shipped to your house. It's a thing we didn't even think about really that possible, but Amazon's owning a lot of the millennial market really quick. This past Sunday, I was uh, selling tea on the Strip District, and I made it uh, one of my tasks to ask every millennial, which is that's the target market I'm aiming for with my product, where do you get your beverages? Where do you get your groceries? And an overwhelming amount told me they're getting it on Amazon uh, because they have Amazon Prime and they're using it for groceries now. And that really... <laughs> that really made things very clear to me. I don't use Amazon for groceries, but an overwhelming amount of millennials. Amazon started that by acquiring Whole Foods. Who knows? Maybe they'll acquire a Rite Aid, a CVS, a Walgreens, and then they'll move into that sector with the credibility of the business they acquired leveraged on their back in order to really own that market. What do you think about that? Amazon is most definitely going in many different directions. Amazon's definitely going to be around for the long run. It's not going anywhere. I think eventually it might hurt them for running in so many different directions, but they're going to have a lot of those directions that are actually going to pay off for them. I know, you know, in the past year or so, seeing the Amazon Go store model, I'm really excited to see that, you know, go across the nation, being able to walk into a store, pick up what you want and just leave. It's sort of the transitionary period between having anything you want delivered in your hand within that hour versus 
you know, going into a grocery store, going through that whole process, checking out. It's just so time consuming. Being able to walk in, grab what you want and leave is where things are heading. Interesting to see how America has really been the playground, so to speak, of Amazon. A lot of other countries, they have Amazon capabilities, sure, but America's the one who's really experiencing the shift in consumer purchases that Amazon has caused. I was talking about this a lot with my family over the weekend about how America, because of their political policies and such, they have more business capabilities than any other country. And no other country do you have so much road to travel on with your own car and you go back to your own house with so many acres of land of beautiful, luscious, fertile land. We have all these commodities in the United States and one of the huge biggest things is the capitalistic system, which allows companies like Amazon to breed into huge sizes into just monster amounts of capital. Uh, Jeff Bezos' capital is raising so high, it really surpassed the $100 billion point. That means he has more money than hundreds of companies do gross domestic product. It's a time which we've never seen before in our lives, and uh, America is really the one that's experiencing the brunt of the uh, consumer change to online here as we're approaching the 2020s, which I think will just be um, a, a huge milestone for uh, business and digital uh, mending together. And you know, speaking of Jeff Bezos, I think I read somewhere he almost makes. I think if it, if it were to be put into terms of hours, he's making like five thousand dollars an hour doing what he's doing. So as more millennials and more people are, you know, bringing Amazon products into their home and using Amazon to fulfill their shopping needs, of which there are many shopping needs that are really wants. Uh, in America especially, there's a lot of money being misspent and uh, people are just buying useless crap, really. And they're not really focusing in on achieving what they want to achieve with their money. Exactly. It's a golden age of consumerism, really, how individuals are just purchasing indiscriminately, really. I mean, if Christmas isn't a good time to really talk about this or the day after Christmas... I don't really know what is. Out of the presents I got this year, they're different. They're more specialized. They're more customized than they have ever been. Uh, all these companies are creating better and better products. One of the good ways to just see how how many ways uh, products are being split into all these kind of micro products that you know service a certain niche. It's incredible. Uh, a good thing to look at is Indiegogo. Indiegogo, you'll see. You know, 10 different screen monitors there, each with an innovation towards a certain niche. You'll see a mouse with an innovation towards a certain, you know, market group. You'll see a chair that's made for gamers that'll make you have perfect alignment. You'll see a teapot that's perfect for tea snobs because of all these characteristics that makes it better from this teapot. I've never seen more products under a certain category spanning to so many different markets in my life and it's a positive thing for the individuals within those markets because they're getting a product that's better for them however it creates the market share split in between so many more people than just a couple different brand names typically it was the whether the brand is the cheapest that's a that's a target group that it's targeting whether the the brand is the best that's a target group or whether the brand was the first, 
But now it's split up into so many different target groups that each have their own specific uses, which are, yes, making their lives better once again. However, making the market share so diluted. And with so many products on the market and with the online selling capabilities that are out there, it's so easy to start making money and you know create a product to put out there on the market that, yeah, can do well, but the reality is in the long run, there's minimalism and extremism. And so if you have those products that are on either ends of those spectrums, it can do really well. But if you're in between, ultimately, you're going to run into some issues. And so, you know, you go to New York and people buy the milkshakes that they'll spend $30 on like just you. for the Instagram photo. Like yes, you, right? like me, Mark. <laughs> just I'll kidding. go there. I'm still, I'm still hoping to go to New York and get the wings that are covered in flakes of gold. I still haven't had the opportunity yet, but I will, Mark. And, uh, you know, it is for the Insta photo, but it's also the experience. Indubitably. You mentioned earlier how Jeff Bezos is making about 5000 an hour. That's a lot. But I actually just Googled it, and he's making almost $5 million an hour. To be exact, that's $4,475,885 per hour. I forgot the thousand was really a million. I was actually thinking about it as I was saying it, and I was thinking, I mean, 5,000 hour, I mean, that's pretty doable. <laughs> I mean, it's not doable by my standards in the next couple months, but, I mean, it's doable. I'm like, I can be Bezos. Next couple of years, for sure. Yeah, absolutely, Mark. That's so funny. Um, but one of Amazon's big competitors in the bulk global sector of online shopping has been Alibaba. Have you heard a little bit about Alibaba? I haven't bought anything from Alibaba. I do know that in some countries it has been doing extremely well. Uh, but here in America, I think it's more of a site that people are using to purchase products in bulk. Uh, for resale. Exactly. But one of those concerns that I've run into, uh, at least studying Alibaba and some of the different people that have done purchases through it, is just the control of the quality of what you're selling. It's really easy to go out and buy something and get a fake product that ultimately might hurt you. That's a good point. Two really good points you put up there. Uh, Alibaba really owes owing, uh, owning a lot of the Asian market while over in the U.S. doing a lot of bulk goods. And also the manufacturing quality. Since it's not manufactured in the United States, owners or the founders or the managers of whatever product that's manufacturing it do not have direct control or supervision over the standards of the factory they're producing in, which is why all these products uh, might not come back to standard or maybe they were a plastic using a mold and they're missing a piece of the plastic or any of these a quantity of uh, mistakes can happen when you're not under direct supervision, uh, which is one of the problems of outsourcing. But nonetheless, outsourcing does allow you to make a lot cheaper because of the standards of wage from a lot of other countries. In addition to that, I've seen a lot of United States entrepreneurs going to Alibaba whenever they want to open Amazon shops. I know you kind of, you are into Amazon uh, selling. You were talking a little bit about the credibility with a product and the end consumer. Uh, an Amazon system of reviews, how reviews are really the number one way consumers think about purchasing a product or not. For example, a product that's the same price and wants four and a half stars versus a product that's also the same price but three and a half stars, one's going to drastically triumph over the other, really giving the consumer a voice in the end 
product. How have you seen that dynamic kind of play out in the Amazon sphere? So it actually reminds me of something that I noticed the other day. Uh, as a consumer, I was looking to purchase an item. And whenever I was looking at the reviews, there were these flawless reviews, you know, five stars, hundreds of people had reviewed this product. And then I started looking a little closer and all of the reviewers were talking about a different product or it was very generic terms. And I realized that this product, somebody had paid for a whole bunch of fake reviews and it was just entirely fake. And right. I went to another product Saw very similar things. Right. Even if there is verified users, what these Amazon entrepreneurs are doing now is that they're going onto sites which give their product away for either very cheap, like 10% of the price, or for free completely for individuals to gain it and to do a blanket review on it, which is why these reviews come out so generic and so not very engaged with the product, so to speak. Um, but nonetheless, this is how the Amazon landscape is now, and entrepreneurs are adapting to it as they need to. But we were just actually in ethics class together this past semester. What do you think about the ethical uh, dilemma, if there is one, in this in this sort of uh, approach? I do think it is a major ethical dilemma, being a seller of a product and you know paying for fake reviews that are going to mislead the consumer. We're at a time that... Consumers want to know uh, specifically that the product they're getting is going to be of quality, that they're not being misled. They want quality descriptions. They want good reviews. They want to make an informed choice when purchasing something. And to try to pass along a product that is not going to meet the consumer's needs or you know specifically what they're looking to get, I think that's going to hurt them in the long run as society starts to look for a new way to purchase. Sellers need to provide value if they're going to be successful in that long run. If I have a product and I'm just looking to make a quick buck, I'm not going to do as well as the person that's you know specifically looking to provide value to the people that I'm selling to. Great point. Value is what's going to win at the end of the day. You mentioned the, the term long term. I think one of the things going back to our education at Grove City, they do well, is informing us about what might happen long term. I'll go ahead and cite one of my professors, uh, Professor Howley, how he always mentions the long term of whatever you're trying to do. As I mentioned, we both had business ethics with him, and he's he talked about what sort of long-term decisions you have to make uh, for every stakeholder involved. There are so many stakeholders involved into a business, whether it be the end consumer, the employees, the preliminary investors, the family, stakeholders if you already issued an IPO, as well as your ethical stakeholders, uh, the stakeholders of your own personal life. At Grove City College, we're really talking about a holistic sort of uh, way to do entrepreneurship that uh, really is principled on Christian values that you don't find other places and that sometimes you don't even find on, uh, you know, Amazon entrepreneurship or, um, you know, small business entrepreneurship or anything of that sort. That's right, Mark. And uh, I think it is important uh as students who are studying entrepreneurship, especially in that Christian setting, 
to take those factors into account with how we conduct business, to use Christian ethics throughout our business lives. How does Christianity play into first the college and then the major as a whole since we're really uh, entrenched within that area of, of the college the most? But first start with the so if at the college, one of the things that I had noticed, uh, you know, going back to one of my favorite professors, Professor Yvonne English, she had told us the story about how she once had a student who was afraid of making money. They thought that it would be unchristian uh, to actually have a profit uh, in your business. That can't be further from the truth. Being able to serve others as well as helping their problem in an honest way with an honest solution. Now, when you start getting into problems like fraud, right, which we talk a lot about in business ethics, whenever we get into problems uh, such as money laundering, or I just heard of recently um, an individual taking money from the car dealership they worked from. You know, it's really bad whenever it's a business owner going to these organizations and completely screw up with the economic system they're running on. That's what really does a ton of damage to them. But in our Christian classes, we learn that this isn't the way to do it. In these Christian classes, we learn that one must lead with the same principles that one has set before their own life, which is integrity, character, love, caring, and service for the individuals uh, they work with, they employ, uh, their end consumers. So... Typically, what they preach a lot at Grove City College is that um, we have higher standard of characters and principles among uh, any other colleges, A, in our region and also within our whole nation. I'm really happy that I'm within this nurturing environment at Grove City College that really enables you to get to the next level uh, with your own integrity and character. It really shows you the right path, whether you decide to pick it or not. What do you think about that experience and that culture? The culture at Grove City College is perfect for nurturing uh, its students and helping them find specifically where their place is uh, in life, what they're supposed to be doing. And to be able to find what you believe in and how you want to conduct yourself to actually achieve something is necessary. Right. Cam, what do you want to do with your life? I want to be a serial entrepreneur. I want to have a startup after startup. Uh, so obviously that means I need to figure out the first business that can be successful before I can move on. But ultimately, I mean, helping other entrepreneurs uh, is a passion that I have. Being able to provide value to others, uh, specifically growing up, I went through the 4-H program, and so I definitely see myself giving back in that way to the community. But like I said, also helping other entrepreneurs like myself. I think in the entrepreneurship community, it is very common for other entrepreneurs to be very, very willing to help other entrepreneurs in their ventures to be able to succeed because we have all been helped by so many others before us. That's an extremely great point. Individuals just have a compassion that have already walked the path that we have of entrepreneurship. You can't do it without other people. You don't net. You don't just work. You you don't you don't just 
work hard your whole life and get to the top, you network your way to the top. You connect your way to the top. You don't just work your way to the top. Hence the the very popular uh, quote nowadays, which is, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Well, it just doesn't happen. Like, you go out, you get five people that are in a place you want to uh, be in, and then you become in that place and you're good. No, you work your way up to that uh, through deep and meaningful connections. So that's actually one of my favorite quotes. Another one of my favorites comes from Sir Brian Urquhart. He was actually a prisoner of war in Korea with the English uh, military. And he was tortured. His whole team was captured. And they were uh, getting threatened to be tortured. And although he went through extreme pain uh, being tortured and such, he never actually gave up the intelligence that he had because he knew other individuals would pain and get hurt and die from it. The following is Sir Brian's prayer. It says, teach us, good Lord, to serve thee as thou deservest, to give and to not count the cost, to toil and to not seek for rest, to fight and to not heed the wounds, to labor and to not ask for any reward, save that of knowing that we do thy will. But that one's actually not even as good as James 1.12, which is, blessed is the one who persevered under trial because having stood the test, the person will receive the crown of life the Lord has promised to those who love him. And both those really summarize, I think, the Grove City College principles we learn in entrepreneurship the best. How about you? Did you think of one? Yeah, Mark. Uh, so the past few months, I've actually been listening to Gary Vaynerchuk. And one of the quotes that I've really loved uh, is, you don't grow up driving, you figured it out. And I think that's so true of entrepreneurship and really what any of us do in life, the idea that you have to figure stuff out. You're not going to know when you're doing something how to do it. And uh, I know working on dance tracks uh, my freshman year, it was something where nobody on our team knew how to you know, make a mock-up of an application. None of us really knew how to design a website. And whenever one of my teammates asked me, what are we going to do? There's three of us on this team, and we don't know how to do this, this, and this. And I said, we'll figure it out. And that's what entrepreneurship is, being able to go out there and figure it out. Whether you're going to figure out how to do it or you're going to figure out a way to have somebody do it for you, you're going to figure it out. And that's what's going to make you successful. Amen and hallelujah. Exactly right, Cameron. I couldn't agree more with what you said. Uh, I love that. Uh, someone once told me, Entrepreneurship isn't something you learn. It's something you do. And that, I think, really epitomizes what this whole podcast is about. Entrepreneurship is something that is actively added upon and created. And we couldn't be any closer to being that of a creator of our own destinies, of our own wills. We bend reality to our will, the future to our will based on what we create and what sort of success we want. And to be in a position like this extremely thrills me personally, and I can't wait to live a whole life of it. And uh, But I love that. I love that quote, Cameron. Do you have any closing thoughts for this episode of The Fishbowl? Really, Mark, the reality is every day we wake up and we tell ourselves excuses of you know, why we can't actually start working on something or why we can't do this, why we can't do that. And the reality is, 
we just need to start acting. Going out there and doing something is how you're going to make something happen. All it takes is some action and believing in yourself to actually start accomplishing these things. We can tell ourselves for years and years that we can't do something or make excuses of why we can't do it. And the reality is it's very much so achievable to do what we want to do. It's just getting into the right mindset to actually go out and do it that's going to make the difference. Awesome. Well, that's all for this episode of The Fishbowl. 